Welcome to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Welcome everyone to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack, and today our guest is Will Coleman. Will began his real estate career in 2016 by investing in and self-managing single-family properties in the Dallas-Fort Worth market while working in property management for Graystar Real Estate Partners. He now works as the director of Rand Capital, a mortgage brokerage, which focuses on finding the deal, financing on apartments and mobile home parks. Welcome to the show, Will. How are you doing? Well, how about yourself? I'm doing good. Thank you so much. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your background and um, just how you got started in real estate. Yeah, yeah. And thanks again for having me on the show. I'm, I'm excited to uh, get this moving. But um, so I grew up in Texas, a, a typical kind of uh, went to college and grew up with the entrepreneurial mindset and did not enjoy college. And uh, so I graduated early and very quickly, um, somewhere everyone else was reading Bigger Pockets. And I was like, I, I moved back after college with my parents. I was like, I've got a little bit of money. I'm going to buy a house and house hack it. So I I bought my first house while working for Graystar, which is one of the largest property management companies in the U.S. I knew I wanted to get into commercial real estate. So I I was like, let me work on the front lines at Graystar and then bought a single family house hack that just just saved up some money and started to slowly acquire more single family and built up a, a single family portfolio. And at the same time, got a new job at a commercial real estate bank. So we did lending on multifamily, on single family, on retail, on office, on everything. I was an underwriter there. I, I fell in love with kind of the numbers and lending and, and the debt behind commercial real estate. And then I made the decision to switch to multifamily. And I joined Jake and Gino as a student and then got to know Gino and, and Jake. And uh, they offered me the opportunity to partner with them on uh, building a, a mortgage brokerage, Rand Capital. So I moved out to Tennessee and uh, we are almost two years in now on, on building a, a mortgage brokerage. I really just kind of focused on being a one-stop shop financing for multifamily and mobile home parks nationwide. Oh, wow. Where did you end up meeting uh, Jake and Gino? <laughs> if anyone knows them, you'll know Josh Rusin. And Josh Rusin is probably the best salesman this planet has ever seen. I got connected with him through a, a mutual contact of mine and Josh uh, sold me on Jake and Gina. <laughs> and what was it about like multifamily and the lending space that um, really attracted you? Uh, I always enjoyed real estate just through the fact that I kind of had the philosophy of, I want to build a foundation of income. It's just a foundation that produces income so that I can not have to worry about just income in order to pay expenses. So if you have a foundation of income, then you can kind of go to the next level and, and pursue a passion, I guess you might say. Um, so real estate, in my eyes, was the easiest way to do that, to build that foundation of income, which I had done through the single family. And now trying to take the next step and build a business on top of that and go from there. And then the debt space, a phrase that I'm trying to coin is that debt is the circulatory system of the economy. And you have to keep your finger on the pulse. So your, your circulatory system is your blood. 
And debt is really what is the blood of the economic system because everything has debt on it. And the amount of debt, the interest rates, the DSCR on those debts and their ability to make those payments, um, for some reason, just connected to me. And I really enjoyed learning about it. So I I wanted to get into the, the lending space and learn how it all works. And I got into real estate almost out of laziness and then fell in love with debt on top of it. <laughs> so that's great that you were able to find your passion, at least um, in the debt space. Yeah, it, most people wouldn't, wouldn't fall in love with it, but for some reason I do. <laughs> Everybody has a place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, with the lending and then the debt, we were talking about the DSCR earlier, especially nowadays um, with COVID and everything like that. What are they looking for more now in terms of um, lending and making sure that you have enough, like you're not being over leveraged? Like what are some of the things that have changed um, because of COVID? The biggest thing that's probably changed is that they're hesitant to lend to new borrowers. Uh, It is harder as a new borrower in this environment to get lending just because banks are in the business of mitigating risk. They want to lend out capital to the lowest risk possible. And in a market environment from 2010, 2020, it was mostly going up. I mean, 2010, there was more risk in the environment, but for the most part, everyone had a positive outlook on the next year. And because of that, lenders would be more lenient and they would probably do higher leverage. And if you were new and you had a strong balance sheet, they would feel okay with lending to you. Um, But now we're in a situation where we don't know what the next six months are going to bring. There's a lot more risk in the market. So lenders will lean on experience because if if you've been doing it for five, 10 years, there's a lot less risk in lending to you. Um, So if you are a newer investor, what I would say is it is worth it to find a partner that has experience. You know, a lot of people want to do it themselves, and now is just not the time to do that. I would highly recommend finding a partner, giving them 10% of the deal, and solely just for the experience. It'll excel you as, as a borrower, and it will make lending significantly easier. So when you're talking about experience, um, working with an experienced partner, what, what are the lenders looking for in terms of experience? Yeah, I, I'd say, so it, it depends on the lender and what type of debt and deal you're looking for, I would say at a minimum 12 months of ownership. You've owned and operated property for at least 12 months. Um, Some of the larger properties, they really want to see two to three years of ownership of the same asset. So if you're buying a multifamily property, they don't want to, even if you've got 10 years of single family, they really want to see of the same asset. Now, 10 single family is going to be, 10 years of single family will be better than nothing, but they want to see one in the ballpark of one to three years of experience owning the same type of asset that you're looking to get lending on. Um, that's the really big piece of it. And again, it's, it's so worth it. <laughs> and so um, especially for like newer first time investors, like what are some of the steps that you need to take in order to qualify for the loans? Yeah. So let's assume maybe um, you think maybe that a newer investor that's going to buy and try and buy a 10 unit. If you're brand new going to buy a 10 unit, first, I would say build a relationship with a lender. Lending is very, very much trust and relationship based. So even if you're brand new or if you know someone who's who has bought similar type property, call them and say, hey, who, who do you lend? Who do you use as your lender? Can you make an introduction? And then when they make an introduction, 
offer to buy that lender lunch or try and set up a phone call with them and just say, hey, look, this is my experience. You know, maybe I've worked as an engineer or a lawyer for the past five to 10 years. Um, or maybe you're, you know, 21 and then you say, you know, I majored in economics. Like that's what I did as a kid. And just like, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm looking to get started. I just want to start building that relationship with you. So that when I do bring you a deal, I'm not some random person out of left field. So if you are new, start building a relationship as soon as possible. And don't be afraid to admit your weaknesses. I mean, like, don't try and posture up and say, oh, I've got a $5 million net worth when you don't. I mean, just be very honest and genuinely try and build a relationship with that individual lender. Because if you're new and and you've known a lender for six months, there's a much higher likelihood that they will be willing to help you rather than if you call them, say, hey, I've got a deal and and they have no idea who you are. They'll they'll probably never call you back, (laughs) to be honest. So uh, I would just say, find it. Ask someone you know that currently owns and operates uh, multifamily, ask who they use for their lender, and then ask for an introduction and just reach out to them and be genuine and start building a relationship with them. That's great advice. And so once you established a relationship with the lender, and let's say you're looking for um, a deal comes across now, when would be the appropriate time to actually bring the lender into it and then um, have that conversation? Yeah, the sooner the better. If it's a legitimate deal, um, like let's say you've sent them an LOI, call the lender and say, hey, we've submitted an LOI on this property. Here's, here's a high level overview of what the deal looks like. And the lender can say, okay, you know, roughly we think we can do this. And then if you're in the LOI negotiations and it starts to become serious, like you really think they're going to accept that LOI, go ahead and call your lender and say, hey, talks are getting serious. Here are the financials. We're probably going to be under contract in the next week or so. Um, can we start underwriting it? And that way, once you sign the contract, your lender can hopefully issue a term sheet a couple of days after that. What you don't want to do is get under contract and then start calling the lender because it will take a week to a week and a half to get an application or a term sheet after, you know, once the lender has seen it. So I, I would say if you're seriously submitting an LOI, it's worth at least a phone call with your lender. And then a lot of times now we're hearing um, with the lenders, they're requiring some reserves up front to be held back. Can you talk a little bit about that? And what are some expectations now? These reserves are the pain of my existence. (laughs) (laughs) I hate them. Um, Yeah. So again, lenders are in the business of of mitigating risk. That's all. They look at something and say, what is the risk here? So we are, I mean, everyone knows that we're in a market where there's higher risk. One way you can do that, mitigate that is with reserves. So if you're going through a local community bank, like your local, there's thousands of banks on the street, right? It's your local bank that lends on commercial real estate. The majority of them are not requiring reserves right now. So you can still get good terms. um, And the majority of them are not requiring reserves. If you're going through Fannie and Freddie, which is your, uh, it's government debt, it is Fannie and Freddie is normally on stabilized properties of of a million dollars or higher. They are requiring reserves and it depends on the type of property. But for the most part, it's going to be 12 months of principal and interest reserves. So whatever your your annual debt payment is, they're going to want you to put that in an escrow account. Um, And we are in a scenario where if the state of emergency is lifted, then within a time period, those reserves will be refunded and, and given back to the investor. 
if the state of emergency is not lifted, they're going to hold on to those reserves for at least 12 months. Um, so, or I guess I'd say at most 12 months. So Fannie and Freddie are doing reserves right now. Some lenders are, but the majority of banks are not doing reserves right now. So what happens if you have like a bridge loan? Um, what kind of reserves are needed for that? So bridge loans are generally interest only, uh, two to three year term. And almost every bridge loan I've seen is six to nine months interest only reserves. So if you're just, you don't have to pay the principal essentially, it's six to nine months of your interest payment. And the majority of the time you can include that in your loan proceeds. So you can actually get a loan high enough that they'll take some of those proceeds and put it in the interest account. And that counts as the loan. So it doesn't have to come out of pocket, but it is generally six to nine months of interest reserves. We love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. Now, we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about, serving you, our listener, at a higher level and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. And for investors, what are some of the pitfalls, I guess, that you've seen um, as they're coming in that, you know, end up not working out for them and they don't qualify for the loan? There's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I guess just be prepared and communicate with your lender on the front end. Like don't try and hide things. Don't try and submit a deal and then say, hey, we need to do this in, in 35 days. Like just be prepared, have your documents in order, have your tax returns, have your P&Ls, your rent rolls, um, and try and get as much information from the seller as possible and then communicate with the lender as early as you can and be provide them with as much information as you can. And this is huge. A summary of the deal and your game plan is so helpful because a lot of times the owner will just send the lender your the rent roll in the T12 or the you know the finances on the property, and they'll just say, "What can you do?" If you type up a, even a paragraph that says, uh, "We're buying this property at this price. We're buying it because of this. Our plan is to go in and, and put. We're going to remodel the." countertops, we're going to replace the cabinets. It's going to cost us approximately X amount per unit. We're going to repave the the roads. And after we do that, we expect the income to go from this to this, and that we expect our value to be this. And we expect to refinance within three years or so. Like you could do that within five sentences, have that upfront, have your financials prepared and just have a strong level of communication with your lender. Um, That will help significantly probably the biggest hangup is a miscommunication of they get the deal in a contract, you send the financials and you almost like forget about the lender and just say, just figure it out, Let whatever the lender, like, just give me the loan. Like a high level and a, and a strong communication between the buyer and the lender uh, clears up a lot of those problems. 
That makes sense. And so what happens when, um, I guess, the newer investor comes in and, you know, they want to get started? Um, what are the first things that they need to provide to you guys? That's a great question. The It starts with the individual. So your personal financial statement, which if you go to rancre.com forward slash PFS, we have one you can fill out. Um, but your, your personal financial statement is just an account for your assets and your liabilities so that the lender knows how much cash you have, how much assets you have, and how much credit card debt you have and all, and all your liabilities. If it's a local bank, they will want to see your tax returns and your K-1s, which is a beast. <laughs> but your personal tax returns, three years of your tax returns. So uh, 2020, 2019, 2018, I guess no one's got 2020 at this point. So 19, 17, and 18, they will want to see a T-12, which is your, the previous 12 months of income and expenses. If you have the past three years, even better. Um, so as much historical finance as you can see you can on the property. Um, and then a rent roll. So even if you can do the, the last couple months rent roll, that would be helpful. But think of it as the same amount of documents you would want to see from the seller, the lender will want to see that. And then your personal financial statement and tax returns, because while you're putting 20% down on the deal, they're putting 80% down. And so they, they want to see just as much or more financial information that you want to see as a buyer. So then is it the personal financial statement of who's going to be signing on the loan or everybody on the team um, on the team? It depends. It's normally everyone who's, I mean, it is everyone who's signing on the loan, but any banks, anyone who owns 20% or more of the deal 95% of the time, they will require that person to guarantee the loan and they will want all the financials on all of those individuals. For agency, it's just whoever is signing the loan. So if you've got two guys that own 40% and they have $25 million net worth, then no one else needs to guarantee the loan because they will cover it. Uh, so the it depends on, depending on the percent of ownership and what type of loan, but Majority of the time, anyone that owns 20% or more will need to be vetted by the lender and, and be a signer on the loan. And the good news for LPs or passive investors, and a lot of people don't understand this, is that the recourse or the non-recourse doesn't impact you as a limited partner because you're not signing the loan. So if it's a, if it's a recourse loan, the only the people that are recourse are the people that are signing loans, and that's generally the GP. If you're an LP on a non-recourse loan, great. But you as an LP, as an impasse investor, you almost want your GPs to be on recourse debt because then, you know, they're on the hook for the loan. I talk to people all the time. They're like, I can't sign recourse debt. What about my investors? I'm like, they're not signing the loan. It doesn't matter. That makes sense. Um, and so what has been the biggest, one of the biggest challenges like um, uh, building up the mortgage business? Yeah. So 2020 is not an easy year. So I, you know, I, my job is to sell debt. You come to me with the deal and I find you the best debt for that property. Um, and we're in an environment where it's not easy to get a loan because there's reserves, there's higher restrictions, there's higher underwriting. There is, there's just more risk in the market. So lenders are less willing to lend. And that's by far been the biggest challenge of, you know, we're, it's as if you're trying to sell cigarettes when the government is trying to outlaw cigarettes, right? It makes it much difficult. Um, but you know, I, I look at it as during 2020, 
when, if you can make it through the hard times, once it dips around the other way, then you'll skyrocket because a lot of people quit. You've proven that you can handle the tough times. Um, so yeah, definitely the hardest part has been lending in a non-lending favorable environment. And because right now it's not a favorable environment, um, what is kind of like the time framing of getting your loan qualified? It's surprisingly the same. This is something that uh, there's probably a, a large misconception right now is the terms are better than ever outside of the reserves. The terms on debt is the best ever in U.S. history. Like the best interest rates, some of the best leverage. I've seen banks giving non-recourse. I mean, banks are desperate to give loans. So it's probably one of the, now you'll probably get the best terms on debt ever. I mean, I guess in the 80s and 90s, maybe you could get 100% leverage, you know, I'm probably exaggerating to say the best ever, but it's phenomenal terms right now. And the speed of closing is the same. Like I've closed loans in 35 days. I've closed in 51 days. It's pretty much still in that kind of 30 to 60 day window. Really the only restriction is who they're lending to. They're much more selective because of the risk, but the terms and the time frame is, is still, it's really good. Thank you so much for sharing. So, Will, um, what is next for you? <laughs> um, our goal, we have we have revenue goals for the brokerage. I'd say for we're trying to hit thirty million this year in loans. Uh, next year is fifty million. You know, I've got a single family in Texas. I'm we're, I'm currently actively looking to buy our, our myself and then brand CRE. So we've an investment arm and we we own a portfolio of about fourteen hundred units. And so we are currently looking to purchase more units on that side. And I, I will certainly invest on that. So I've got the foundation of, of the real estate. And next is the building a, a you know, mortgage company on top of that. And then uh, we'll see where we go. And so, well, how has real estate investing impacted your life so far? It's probably led to uh, like realizing my passion, I guess. Not necessarily that real estate is my passion, but economics and the financial industry is, is definitely my passion. So it's provided a stepping stone to uh, really seeing how the economy works. And that's, can't ask for more, much more than that. And what is one thing that you know now about real estate that you wish you knew when you first started? Go big. <laughs> <laughs> if you believe in an idea or an industry or an asset class, don't Put your foot in, uh, go big. I mean, the, kind of a funny side side note is I is Bitcoin. I don't know if you're you're into Bitcoin or, or crypto. Is about six months ago, I was like, man, I really believe in Bitcoin. No one's talking about it, so I put like I put like three hundred dollars in it. <laughs> if, if I would put way more, I'd have been a lot richer. And uh, so I, I'd say, whatever you're gonna do, do it as well. And it, it just don't you know don't think you've got thirty years to do something. You know, try and do it as quick as you can and go big. And what is one thing that sets the successful people apart in the real estate investing business? Probably um, being able to not get emotionally caught up in things and thinking logically. I'm a big Howard Marks fan and he talks, he's a a large, uh, I guess he's a debt fund, hedge fund operator, uh, Oak Tree Capital, but he talks about being a second level investor, a second level thinker. And it's, just not getting caught up in a trend and really thinking logically and uh, don't get caught up in the euphoria as you rise to the top and really understanding a market cycle and, and just 
investing should not be emotion driven. It should very much be level headed, logical thinking. And um, I think the people will be successful for, for three or four years. I think in the multifamily world, we've seen people be extremely successful for three, four years, but that means nothing if you're not successful for 20 or 30 years. And the ones that are successful for 20, 30 years understand market cycles and they understand not getting caught up in the emotions um, and not overpaying in an up cycle and being aggressive in a down cycle. So um, that's kind of a long-winded answer. <laughs> no, that's great advice. Definitely. And are there any tools or techniques that you used that have improved your efficiency of your business or your personal life? Uh, reading is probably the biggest one. Um, like anytime I have issues with business or any problem, I'll buy four or five books on that topic and, and just plow through them. And I, I feel like it, you at least I can build a plan that uh, how to solve those problems. And it's been insanely helpful for business just because it's not easy and, and there's a ton of good business books. So, Thank you. And if our listeners want to find out more about you and what you do, well, where can they go? Yeah. So check out our website, rancre.com. Again, if you want to download a personal financial statement, go to rancre.com forward slash PFS. It's got by far the best personal financial statement uh, out there. And then if you want to shoot me an email, my email is will at rancre.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Will. Really appreciate having you on the show today. Thanks. Yeah, it was a good time. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate. We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonifestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.